you have your Bibles, open with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to just grab a couple verses this morning. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. So the first time that I saw that video, uh, one of the questions, I mean, there are a lot of things, obviously, that go through your mind as you're watching it, but one of the uh, questions, at least, that came to me, maybe to some of you as well, is if on, say, this Sunday, today, something like that were to happen to us, right? A quarter, a third of the people that are in this room end up being killed, without any warning, without any provocation, what would the next Sunday look like? In other words, would, would I come back to the same room, to the same church, with the same people? Or does something like that happen and you just basically say, that's it? No more. I'll find another way. In Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26, one of the things I think that we're confronted with, encouraged with, challenged with, is something like this very scenario. If, to be identified as a Christian, to be identified with God's people... If that means suffering and persecution, why why would you ever identify yourself as a Christian? If you knew that pledging your life to the person of Christ, if you knew that changing your identity under the heading Christian could mean that at any moment... Your family's gone, your life is gone, your business is taken away. Why why would anyone, anyone in their right mind knowingly choose to take on that identity? And Hebrews 11, 24 through 26 tells us why. Follow along with me as I read. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer mistreatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Let's pray. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no other good besides you. Father, we come this morning and we ask that you would give us clarity of thought, that you would enable us to choose and to consider with the eyes of faith. That you would cause us to turn and to be mindful of our brothers and sisters across the globe 
who risk much for what seems to be very little, if nothing, in return. Would you encourage their hearts and their minds even today? Would you stir up among this body a desire to pray and intercede for the weak and the defenseless, for those who would suffer for the cause of Christ? And Father, in doing that, would you firmly convince us that whether in suffering or in reward, Christ is worth it. We ask this in his name. Amen. So, why would anyone identify themselves with a persecuted group of people? That's essentially what Moses does. You can read about it in Exodus, of course, but here in this summary overview, in just a couple of verses, the author of Hebrews tells us very clearly why he chose to renounce his identity as Egyptian royalty and to take on the identity of a lowly, abused, mistreated people. He, he did that with eyes wide open, knowing what he was losing, what he was giving up, and what it was that he was about to gain. So let me walk you through just just briefly here how this passage fits together, because I think in, in terms of seeing the passage fit, in terms of its workings, that then helps us as we go through and as we try to flesh out some of these things that are said. All of, all of Hebrews 11, right, the, the hall of faith or heroes of the faith, and so everything that's done or that's not done, everything that's gained or everything that's lost in Hebrews chapter 11 is done so by faith. Moses here in these verses that we have today is singled out for his refusal or his rejection of his Egyptian identity for the sake of claiming his Hebrew identity, and as such, a much lower base existence. And so here's how the passage works. In verse 24, we have the statement as to what it was that Moses did. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And then verses 25 and 26, I think, give us two reasons why he did that. So, to, to help me in thinking through this, I kind of parenthetically insert a couple, a couple words here. So, I would read it something like this. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter because, verse 25, he was choosing to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin because he was considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You see how that works? And if you go a little bit further, these two reasons as to why Moses would throw away a privileged identity to take a persecuted identity, you have these two statements, and and they're a little bit different in terms of what the emphasis is. The emphasis in the first reason in verse 25 emphasizes what it was that he was giving up. 
He refused this title because he chose to take on this rather than what he already had. And then second, I think the emphasis is more on the positive, not so much what he gave up as what it was that he was going to gain. Now, as we go forward here, what we want to do in the time that we have is to try to work through this passage and in terms of the application, do it on at least three levels. One, I mean, we're, we're obviously looking at what Moses did and didn't do, what he was thinking, what his motivation was. And then hopefully we want to be able to take that and say, okay, what you see happening with Moses in eleven twenty four through 26, that is what is at work today with the persecuted church. They face these same choices and they face these same, this same dilemma, Right? Weighing the pros and cons, as it were, in the scales. And then we want to take one more step and we want to say, if that was true of Moses, if this is true of the persecuted church, should this also be true or how can it also be true for us, especially when, at least for right now, we don't happen to be a persecuted minority at least not in the way that we saw in the video here this morning, right? So, back to the text. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Why? Because he chose suffering over the passing pleasure of sin. That's it in a nutshell. See, recognize here that when that the reason that Moses refuses to be called son of Pharaoh's daughter, chooses rather to suffer with the people of God, it's he does that because there is no middle ground. Right? There is not a way for Moses to say, well, I'd like to take advantage of my privilege and my standing here in the Egyptian court, but then I'd also like to be known as this persecuted minority. And then I'll play those off one another in whatever way seems best or whatever way seems to give me the better advantage. And recognize that this is not necessarily, if you and I were in that position, this is, this is not necessarily always so clear-cut, right? Because if, if I'm in Moses' position, I'm, I'm real good about going back, or at least I, I think I am, at going back and trying to justify my fear, my selfishness, my lack of faith. So you know what I do? I'm sitting down and I'm talking with Moses, and Moses is saying, look, we got to get out of here. There's no way that we can continue to identify ourselves here in the palace and turn our backs on the people of God. And I would say, oh, Moses, wait a minute. Let's not be too hasty. Because after all, the fact that we're here all goes to the fact that God has sovereignly placed us here, right? You got pulled out of the water. Pharaoh's daughter gathered you. She took you in. That was not accidental. God did that. And by the way, Moses, we we already have precedent for this. Joseph Joseph rose in the ranks of Egyptian royalty. Joseph didn't have to refuse 
privilege and power and authority? Why, why do you think that you have to? Look at all the good that Joseph did for God's people by staying in the Egyptian courts. Moses, don't you think you, don't you think we could also do a lot of good if we stayed where we are, didn't throw away these advantages, these privileges? Right? I can't be the only one who thinks that way. What's, what's the difference? Why could Joseph stay and Moses have to turn his back and walk out? Well, there are probably a couple different reasons that you could give, but at least one overarching reason is because Joseph and Moses are in two totally different situations. Joseph is placed within the Egyptian courts with Egyptian privilege for the express purpose of saving and preserving God's people. If Joseph is not there, if you go back and read in Genesis, this little fledgling family who would become the nation of Israel, they starve and they die. There is no more covenant people. Therefore, Joseph must stay where God has placed him in order that God's people may be preserved. Is that the case with Moses? Does Moses have to stay where he is? Because if he doesn't, he would be abandoning God's people. He would be handing them over to destruction. No, far from it. It's just the opposite. Moses would be turning his back on God's people if he stayed where he was. And so because of that then... There is no other choice for Moses. The choice is, I can deny God and his people and stay where I am, or I can take on this identity and I can suffer with them. For the persecuted church, that oftentimes is the exact same dilemma. There is no middle ground for them. There is no way to identify yourself as a Christian and to also keep whatever comforts and privileges and protections that you once had. And so the stark reality is for the persecuted church, when they're confronted with stepping over into this new life, the life that Christ would offer, they recognize that to identify with this group over here marks me as one of them. It marks me for suffering and persecution. But if I don't take on that mark and identity, I don't take on that identity at all. And so notice then what Moses thinks and what he reasons according to the author of Hebrews in this first statement in verse 25. Moses chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Passing pleasures. Moses has enjoyment. He has, well, at least in one sense, he has contentment, he has satisfaction in his current position in the Egyptian palace. 
He has pleasure. He has at his fingertips whatever he could want. But the eyes of faith, right? By faith, Moses chooses not to keep this. Why? Because the eyes of faith look at the pleasure that I'm taking in. And the eyes of faith see what the natural eye cannot. You know what it sees? It sees that it's fleeting. It sees that it's temporary. It sees that it's not going to last. But here's the catch. If I have two options in front of me, one is to suffer with God's people and the other is to enjoy passing pleasure, and I can't, I can't have both, doesn't it also stand to reason that if I've got these two things in separate columns, he, on the one hand, I have pleasure over here, but it's a passing pleasure, doesn't that also mean that the suffering is passing too? Doesn't it? If suffering and pleasure are pitted against one another, they're going to run on parallel tracks down the course of history, down the time that is my life. And if on the one hand I look at this track and I say, okay, here's pleasure and here's suffering. But when I look at pleasure here, I know that this pleasure is only for a certain amount of time. It's temporary. It's passing. It's not going to last. Don't I also then have to say, well, you know what? So far as I have suffering in this life, that suffering will also be temporary and fleeting and passing. Right? This is all all over Scripture, right? Hold your place here in Hebrews 11. Let's, Let's go back. Let's start in the Old Testament. Let's go to Psalm 16. Psalm 16 starts off with this cry that the Lord would preserve the psalmist, David. David's crying out that the Lord would preserve him. And he says in verse 2, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you, nothing good apart from you. And then notice the way that David closes out this psalm in verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of of joy in your right hand there are pleasures temporarily there are fleeting pleasures in your right hand or is it that in your right hand are pleasures forever forever so knowing then That the pleasure that this world, that this life has to offer you is temporary, is passing, is fleeting, is not going to last. And then on the other hand, at the end of this suffering, I find forever pleasure. Who is the fool for choosing suffering that leads to forever pleasure? That is not a fool's choice. The fool says, I'll take the temporary, short-term pleasure 
and roll the dice with what's to come in eternity. Whereas wisdom through the eyes of faith says, no, 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 no. Yes, I I see all this comfort and all this satisfaction and all this pleasure, and it is pleasure. But I also see that there is an end on this track. But over here on this, I see suffering and deprivation, abuse and scorn. But I also see that there's an end to it. And at the end of it is pleasure that never goes away. That's what Moses saw. And Moses says, well, that's a no-brainer. I want the greater, lasting, more permanent pleasure. And because that lasting pleasure is preceded by suffering, I'll take the suffering first so that I get the pleasure later. Second Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 17 and 18. Notice Paul has the same perspective that David did in Psalm 16, that Moses does in Hebrews 11, when he says this, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. For momentary, light affliction. Just pause here for a second. Momentary, light affliction. Light, Paul says, affliction. This is the man who was beaten, who was whipped, who was stoned, who was left for dead. And he looks at all that and he says, light, hollow, not really very weighty. That's insanity. Nobody talks this way unless there's something more to say. Momentary, light, Affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. That's the same Greek word there that's used in Hebrews 11. For the passing pleasures of sin, the temporal pleasures of sin, is the same Greek word that Paul uses here. For what is seen is temporal, it's passing, it's fleeting. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Go back to Hebrews 11. One more aspect to pull out of this first reason that Moses would reject a privileged identity to take on a persecuted identity. One is that he looks at the pleasure that's his right now for the taking in this privileged identity, and he says, but but that's passing, right? It's temporary. It's not going to last. And by implication, the suffering that is the alternative, that's also going to be temporary and passing. But here's the other thing that we can't pass over too quickly, is that when the author says Moses chose to suffer with the people of God rather to enjoy not just passing pleasure, but what? To enjoy the passing pleasure of sin. 
What, what sin? Any, any record of Moses in Scripture, you know, while he was with the Egyptians, kind of being a womanizer or an idolater, you know, having a drinking problem, drugs, gambling, something? What sin? The passing pleasure of sin. What's, what's the sin that Moses would be hanging on to if he hung on to his Egyptian identity? The sin in context, I think, has to be the privilege, the security the comfort, the safety, right? All those things that we in the West tend to think of as being, what, morally neutral at worst or at best blessings from God. Here, the author says, This comfort, security, ease that Moses had and the pleasure that comes with that was sinful. And you see and you understand why in the context of Moses' life. It's sinful if for the sake of that pleasure and safety and comfort, I reject and renounce God's people. That is sin. If, in order to keep comfort and safety and pleasure, I have to turn my back on God and the call that he has placed on me, that's sin. A stark contrast for the persecuted, right? You're in Nigeria, you're in China, you're in some some other Middle Eastern Muslim-dominated country, right? You know that the only way you get to keep pleasure and comfort is if you don't keep Christ. And, and when, the, when the decision, when the options are that stark, you recognize that not to take on suffering would be sin. What about for us, though? See, here's where we have to be very, very careful. Because on the one hand, am I scratching? On the one hand, there is a tendency for us to even try to make up for our lack of suffering by romanticizing suffering, right? So we say, oh, what's wrong with us that we don't suffer like they do? Right? And so we almost feel guilted into praying that God would bring persecution to us. I don't think that's the right response. Not everything that is a privilege or a benefit or a blessing to us is sin. However, that's not to say that it's never sin. Let me give you some examples. If a pastor or a scholar in the world of academia, determines that in order for me to maintain a certain reputation in the community or on the faculty, I've got to get with the program and realize that the 
confessions of the faith and the convictions of the Christian church are really starting to become outdated. Therefore, I need to, right, I need to mediate, I need to find a middle way in which I can on the one hand hold my Christian beliefs and on the other hand take on some of these secular, humanistic, even atheistic beliefs as well. And I do that so that I can remain in my post. Is it possible that keeping my post in a church or in an institution, is it possible that at that point that post becomes sin to me? I think so. If in order to keep it, I have to begin to even subtly reject Christ and reject His truth. What about with our witnessing and our evangelism, right? We love to say, in part because it's so comfortable, we love to say, listen, I'm not going to be one of those Bible thumpers. I'm not going to go, you know, preach at my neighbor or anything like that. I'm going to let my witness, I'm going to let my witness be my actions, right? That's my testimony. Okay, to a point, that's biblical, Is it possible, though, that when we say, well, I'm not going to preach it, I'm not going to talk it, I'm not going to do anything like that, I'm just going to let them see the truth of God, is it possible that that can be sinful? Okay? One, is there ever any example or indication in Scripture that anyone comes to salvation in Christ without a word being spoken to them? I'll go ahead and tell you, no. Right? That's why the gospel is contained in a message, in words. That's why on Sunday morning, a preacher, if he's serious, does not get up and pantomime his message, right? You have to speak it. So is it possible then that even when I say, well, I'm just going to let my actions and my character be my witness, is it possible that that is really just a, a thinly veiled cover for... Self-centeredness. I I just don't want to be bothered with getting tangled up in this guy's life. He's a mess. If he wants to get out of this mess, he can just look to me. He'll see how to do it. Or fear of man. I'm afraid to say anything that bears the truth of eternity because I'm afraid of the response that I'll get back. I'm afraid they'll think less of me. I'm afraid they'll mock me. I'm afraid they'll brand me, whatever. At that point, doesn't this endeavor to win people only by our actions, doesn't that seem to strike you as beginning to border on sinful? Parents, what are you going to buy for your kids for Christmas? Right? Very easy as parents. We want our kids to be liked. We want them to be accepted. We want them to fit in. We want them to have friends. And with that comes this huge pull underneath, under the surface of the current, that says, in order for that to happen, I got to make sure that my kid is not too different. Otherwise, he's just going to be shut out. And so, because of that, then I'll buy 
games, movies, videos, you know, things that I otherwise know is not really healthy or in the best interest of my child or let them dress this way or that way because I fear for my child's reputation and really probably more for mine than I do walking by the fear of the Lord and saying, come what may. We're pursuing righteousness. We're not going to succumb. We're not going to sacrifice these standards. Do you see what's going on? So even for us in the West where we're comfortable and safe and secure, that doesn't necessarily mean that we don't still face some of these same situations and scenarios. The very blessings that God gives to us in our safety, in our security, in our enjoyments can themselves be corrupted by sin when it becomes more about me and how I'm thought of and how I'm perceived rather than a reckless, diligent pursuit of Christ. So reason number one, that Moses threw away a privileged identity for a persecuted identity. He chose suffering instead of the pleasures of sin. One, because that pleasure is passing, and two, well, because it's sin. And there's no way to keep Christ and keep sin at the same time. Reason number two, that Moses throws away one identity to take on another. And this is more on the positive side. He gave up the passing pleasure of sin in verse 25. What does he gain in verse 26? And here's what we read. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughters because, verse 26, he was considering the reproach, or you could say the shame or the humiliation. He was considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. That's another absurdity, right? Here's one of the ways in which I think this verse paints with bold colors the choice that was before Moses. When the author says he considered the reproach, the shame, the humiliation of Christ greater riches than the treasure of Egypt, that, that word treasure there, the, I mean, it means riches and, you know, jewels and gold and all that kind of stuff, but there's a, there's a slight emphasis on the fact that it's treasured, meaning that it's kept, that it's locked away, that it's sealed and safe, right? So if you think back to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, when he says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal, right? Don't lay up that kind of treasure because that treasure really is not secure. There are ways for the lockbox to be picked. There are ways for that treasure to be corrupted and decay and rust. And here's some of the same idea here. He looks at the shame of Christ and the shame that comes with God's people, and he looks at the safety and the security of the treasures of Egypt. They're locked away in a vault. They're protected by the force of the military. They're guaranteed by the Pharaoh himself. That kind of security, he says, nah, I don't think so. It's really not safe. It's not secure. 
We already mentioned Jesus alluding to that. Listen, you think that you are making treasure. You think that you are treasuring, guarding, keeping things. These things are gone in an instant. And even if you're able to hold your riches in this treasure chamber, whatever form that takes, right? A bank, a mattress, anything. Even if you can hold it and keep it until the end, guess what? It's still the end. It goes away because you go away. This life, this wealth goes away. And so Moses looks and he says, that looks safe and secure. That looks like guaranteed retirement. That looks like the smarter investment. But by faith, with the eyes of faith, Moses turns and he looks and he sees the shame, the absence of treasure with God's people. And he says, no, the real riches are over here in the absence of riches. Do you see the the paradox or the oxymoron or I, I don't know what you want to call it, right? I am more rich. I have greater riches without riches than I do with riches, What's the justification for saying that? It comes at the very last phrase of that last verse in 26. The reason he considered the shame of Christ to be more valuable, more enriching than all the treasures of Egypt was because he was looking to the reward. Briefly here. The way that this works is that Moses sees the treasure of Egypt and he says there's an expiration date on that treasure. Once it reaches its expiration date, once I expire, that treasure is done and gone. There's no way for me to hang on to it. However, over here with this fleeting, passing, temporary, momentary light suffering and shame that comes with Christ and his people... There's a reward that's tacked on to the end of that that continues where the treasures of Egypt stop. All right, so the million-dollar question is, what is the reward that Moses was looking to that would lead him to make such a crazy risk and say, I'm going to throw all this treasure away in the hope that I get a reward, this reward, in the future? What is it? Turn back to Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You know what Moses saw as greater riches than all the wealth of the nations that Egypt had amassed? You know what the persecuted church sees as greater riches than temporary safety And privilege, they see God. They go back to Psalm 16 and they say to themselves, 
In your presence is fullness of joy. There is no full joy outside of God's presence. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Can this life, anything in this life, offer me Psalm 16, 11? Can they offer me full joy? Can they offer me forever pleasure? No. Turn over to Hebrews 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? Hebrews is saying... Follow him. He's worth it. And why is he worth it? Because not only do you get fullness of joy and eternal pleasure, but because at the end of your suffering, Christ shows us what comes after the suffering, ruling and reigning and glory. And then just in case you still haven't been convinced Hebrews 12, a little bit further, down towards the end of the chapter, verse 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. What's the reward that Moses saw that caused him to say, shame and suffering make me more rich than the wealth of nations? The reward that he saw was God himself, unspeakable, unimaginable joy. The reward that he saw was glory and honor and ruling and reigning with Christ over the very nations that would try to snuff him out. And the reward that he saw was a kingdom that would come, that would be far greater, far more lasting, far richer, far more powerful than anything that Egypt could possibly imagine or any other nation or empire to come since. C.S. Lewis once said that if you aim for heaven, in other words, you aim for the eternal, you'll find that you get that and earth thrown in. But if you aim for the earth only, you find that you get nothing. The prayer that we need to have then as we think of our brothers and sisters who are persecuted across the globe, who do not have the safety and the security that we are privileged to have, the thing that we need to think of and the thing that we need to pray for fervently on their behalf, is that with the eyes of faith, they would see more and more clearly the reward that is theirs in the presence of God and in eternity. And what we need to pray for ourselves is that God would wake us, where needed, out of this stupor that comes with the anesthetizing effects of wealth and prosperity. 
right? We walk around in this haze, in this dream, like everything that we can get our hands on is what's really real. In all of Scripture, God himself is saying, these things are just shadows. You haven't even come to see the real substance. You're chasing after empty things. So as we look to their example and their encouragement, are we willing to say that whether it comes at the loss of family, business, finances, position, reputation, all those things pale in comparison to the greater eternal riches that God has in store for those who continue to seek Him and follow Him. We're going to close the service a little bit different uh, this morning. We're going to close with, uh, with some time to reflect and pray. And then after that, Andy will come up. He'll lead us in one closing song, and that'll be our dismissal. You are welcome where you're seated. You're welcome to pray with someone, whether that's your spouse, a friend, a neighbor. You don't have to. Please don't feel obligated to do that. If you want to pray silently, please pray silently. That's fine. But if you would, bow your heads now. Take on a posture of prayer. And let me just encourage you to pray in a couple of specific ways before we close out with one final song. First, would you pray for persecuted Christians across the globe. Pray that God would protect them and save them and even deliver them from the hands of their oppressors. Second, would you pray that if he should choose not to, that is, if God should choose not to deliver them and rescue them from persecution, that he would grant them a greater faith and a greater confidence in the reward that's coming to them in eternity?